in connection with Sermon on Lord's Day 34. And so we will turn, first of all, to the prophecy of Jeremiah and then to the Gospel of John. We begin in Jeremiah chapter 2. verses 1 through 13. Jeremiah 2, 1 through 13. The word of the Lord came to me, that is Jeremiah, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, How you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me, and went after worthless, worthlessness, and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through, where no man dwells? And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, Where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar, and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And then we turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. John 14, verses 12 through 17. John 14, beginning at verse 12. The Lord Jesus is speaking here. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So far, our scripture reading. Let's sing in response to this reading from hymn 11, stanzas 1, 2, and 9. Mm-hmm. 
And I may proclaim to you the word of God as the church summarizes it and as we confess it in Lord's Day 34 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Let's read that Lord's Day together. Lord's Day 34, the first question and answer gives us the law of God as we hear it every Sunday morning. We go to question 93. How are these commandments divided? into two parts. The first teaches us how to live in relation to God. The second, what duties we owe our neighbor. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That for the sake of my very salvation, I avoid and flee all idolatry, witchcraft, superstition, and prayer to saints or to other creatures. Further, that I rightly come to know the only true God, trust in him alone, submit to him with all humility and patience, Expect all good from him only, and love, fear, and honor him with all my heart. In short, that I forsake all creatures rather than do the least thing against his will. What is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. And after the proclamation of God's word, we'll respond by singing together from Psalm 115, stanzas 1, 2, and 4. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, have you ever heard anyone complain to you that we perhaps shouldn't have to listen to the Ten Commandments every Sunday morning? Do we really need to hear the law every Sunday? Why do we need to be reminded of our sinfulness every week again? Do we not live in the New Testament, the era of grace, and not under the law? And why does the minister spend so much time in his prayer expressing sorrow for sin, asking God to forgive us? If he he just did that once a month, wouldn't that be good enough? Perhaps you have echoed those same sentiments yourself on occasion. After all, it's not a very pleasant experience to be confronted with your own depravity every Sunday again. And yet, brothers and sisters, we need to view the law as an expression of God's love. It's an expression of his relationship with us. We all know that every relationship must have boundaries. And because the Lord wants a relationship with his children, he puts boundaries in place to keep that relationship intact and also to teach us to be totally devoted to him. And so I preach to you the word of God with this theme and points. God's love teaches us to be totally devoted to him. And this is evident in the preamble of the law. It's evident in the division of the law and also in the first commandment. The law, as I just stated, is an expression of God's loving relationship with his people. But there is a a great depth to that expression that we may never forget. For we are sinners who cannot keep the law 
And so God sent his son to keep it for us. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we proclaim Christ's death and God's love for sinners. But does the forgiveness of our sins then mean that somehow we are now free to live apart from the law? Surely not, congregation. That's not what the Bible teaches. God's love and Christ's love do not dissolve the law. Law and love are not mutually exclusive. Let's go back to paradise. You see, there, the law was not a curse or a burden. In paradise, the law was established so that God could have communion with his children. God's purpose in creating his children was to have communion with them. After all, he's more than our creator. He is our father. And as our father, he desires that we honor him. And so he gave us his law as a gesture of goodwill. In the law, he reveals to his children the way to communion with him. And that's why our inability to keep the law also awakens God's wrath. Our disobedience awakens his wrath precisely because he is a God of love. You see, our rebellion wounds our Father's love. In Jeremiah 2, we have an example of how God appeals to his rebellious people. And you can hear how God expresses his wounded love in that appeal when he says, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? My people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. They have forsaken me, the fount of living waters. And what happens when God's people forsake God's love? Well, then perfect love, which is scorned and despised and insulted, turns into wrath, into holy wrath. And that is why the law became a curse for us, a burden which we cannot carry. And that law, congregation, has not changed because God does not change. That would be inconceivable. But what has changed is that Christ has come. He became the curse for us when he absorbed the wrath of God. He suffered the agonies of hell when he was submerged under God's wrath. And in him we have received the righteousness of God. In him we have received reconciliation with God. You see, our Lord Jesus came to earth to perfectly obey and fulfill what we could not. And we confess that his obedience is ours by faith. When we believe in him, then God looks at us through the lens of Christ's perfect obedience. When we believe in him, then God sees us as we are in Christ. For by the power of, our Holy, of the Holy Spirit, our heart and our mind and our will is being moved and made alive to serve God. And when we understand this, then the law is not a burden, but it is the law of freedom. And so the law is no longer a curse for us. And in Christ, the law has once more become a blessing. Right? Since we are a new creation in Christ, we confess the law as it functions in Christ for us. And therefore, the law is today a blessing once more. In Christ, the law is once more a gesture of God's goodwill 
toward men. And yet at the same time, the law remains a boundary between us and God. He is the creator after all, and we are his creatures. God is God, and we are merely human. He is highly exalted, and so we are called to worship and adore him. And at the same time, God's law is also the expression of his desire to live in communion with us. It's not an arbitrary decree, but it's an expression of who he is. You see, God's law is God's word. And in in that law, he doesn't address us as strangers, but as children. He says, "I I am your God, honor me. I am your father, love me. I am the God who brought you out of the house of slavery. I rescued you from your own rebellion. I took you from the side of Satan and I brought you back to myself. And he is not a God who is far away from us. He is a God who is nearby. You see, we hear all of his love expressed in the words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. In the words of the law, we hear God speaking to us as a father speaks to his children. And in such a relationship, of course, there must be both honor and love. We understand that earthly fathers must receive both honor and love from their children, both obedience and affection. And so it is with our Heavenly Father. We honor Him and we obey Him because He is far above us. He is Almighty God. And we also love Him because in Jesus Christ, He is our loving Father. And so it's very fitting then that the explanation of the Ten Commandments falls under the section of thankfulness in the Catechism. As God's children, we honor Him and we obey Him out of love and thankfulness. And so love cannot be separated from the law. And thankfulness cannot be separated from honor. Take marriage, for example. A marriage between two people is based on love. But does that mean then that the husband can do whatever he wishes and the wife is free to go her own way as long as they claim they are acting out of love? Does love make adultery permissible? Does love give us the freedom to be selfish? You see, marital love can only exist within the parameters of God's law for marriage. Love is only love if if it's based on the solid foundation of God's law. In the words of our Lord Jesus that we read from John 14, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so it's with our relationship with the Lord. We can only love him if we act in accordance with the boundaries that he has established for that perfect father-child relationship. And so by giving his law, God has, God has blessed us. By giving his law, he has expressed his love toward us. By giving his one and only son to keep the law for us, he has expressed his love for us even more deeply. And so for us, obedience to the law becomes an expression of honor and love toward our Heavenly Father, and the two can never be separated. And yes, there are Christians today who believe and sometimes act as if we are free from the law. And while it is true that Scripture teaches us we are free from the curse of the law, nowhere do we learn that we are free from the authority of the law. On the contrary, as we confess in Lord's Day 33, for example, 
Our thankfulness is expressed in good works that are done only out of true faith in accordance with the law of God and to his glory and not those based on our own, <clears throat> on our own opinions or the precepts or rules of men. Again, to say this differently, the Lord Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And what works did Jesus do? Only those which pleased his Father in heaven. Only works that were done in complete agreement with the will of his Father. And so, brothers and sisters, we must be very careful that under the guise and pretext of love, we do not disregard the will of God. Don't think that if you, you feel like you're acting out of love, your actions must be good. Because our hearts are deceitful and our conscience cannot be trusted. Only God's word is to be trusted. His will, that is the guide for our life of thankfulness. And that has to show up in how we live too. True repentance, as we also learn from Lord's Day 33, 33, is something that becomes visible in our life. Good works cannot be hidden. If you are a new creation in Jesus Christ, it will affect your whole life. Let's not forget that. And let's never abuse God's gift of love either to cover up sin in our life. Let's never presume on God's grace and his love in order to cover up disobedience. You can't just say a quick prayer at night, Lord, please forgive my sins, and then then go to sleep without any intention of making any changes the next day. Let's not delude ourselves then into thinking that God's love will ignore sin. Let's not deceive ourselves into thinking that God in his love is not concerned with rebellion or disobedience. The Bible makes it abundantly clear, beloved, that people who do not repent will never enter the kingdom of heaven. On the other hand, we must never forget either that the law is the law of love. It's not a law of strict coercion. Right? It's so easy for us to fall into the trap of, of making the law a, a dry and barren document, a system of do's and don'ts. In this regard, we sometimes fall into the same trap as the Pharisees did in the days of Jesus Christ. We make up our own rules and definitions about the law or in addition to the law. And we impose them on others. And often these homemade rules concern trivial or less consequential matters. And then we get really upset when other people don't conform to our way of thinking. Or another example, when we teach and discipline our children... More often than not, we are, we're more concerned with outward behavior than with the attitude of their hearts. Instead of just drilling obedience into them, we should be pointing them to the love of God. We should be reaching their hearts. Point them to the blessing that comes our way through the law of God. Teach them that the law is not a burden, but that it leads to true freedom. And that obedience is attached to God's blessing. You see, our Father in Heaven is not just meddling in our lives to put shackles and chains on us, but He wants to bring our lives to the point where we blossom in love for Him. And so our service to God has to be more than lip service. 
you could have a pretty good life if you followed all the stipulations of the law very carefully, even if you did not believe in God or in Jesus Christ. But there's no blessing attached to that kind of life. There's only a blessing attached to obedience if it's lived in the context of the gospel. You see, the law can't stand on its own. It must stand in the context of God's love and can only be truly obeyed in that context. God asks that we submit our lives to him in faith. And by our submission to him, we truly become free. And only when we live with this attitude will the law become our highest joy. Only then will we serve the Lord with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. And so we come to the second point. God's law concerns our entire life. The two tables of the law cover our communion with God and our relationship with our neighbor. Again, these two cannot be separated. The Apostle John writes, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So we see then that there's not two kinds of love, but just one. Our love for God is the root for our love for the neighbor. You can only love your neighbor for God's sake. And only by God's grace and in his love can we also have love for one another. And so we shouldn't play an un, place an undue emphasis on the second part of the law, as if the first four commandments don't really have as much to do with daily life and a life of faith before God. We do that sometimes. Why is it that unfaithful church attendance and self-willed worship are often seemingly more acceptable than murder or adultery. And as long as you treat your neighbor properly, it is argued, then it doesn't matter so much how you worship God on Sunday. However, in the Ten Commandments, our behavior toward God comes first, and the duties we owe our neighbor come second. The bond that we have with our Father in Heaven, that is given priority. And yet at the same time, the two tables of the law are not separable. When Jesus summarized that law, he said, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, both of them, love for God and love for the neighbor. So the Ten Commandments cannot be separated. In the book of James, the letter of James, it's written, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. And that congregation is because there is only one lawgiver. And his law is an expression of himself. In it, he declares his love for us, and he teaches us how we should respond to him in love. And this claim is an exclusive one, one that encompasses all of life. God asks us to devote our entire life to him, not just your soul and your heart and your mind, but your whole life, your personal life, your hobbies, your love life, your work, your politics, your education, your holiday everything. And that brings us to the third point and the first commandment. In light what we have already heard, it should be clear then what the first commandment demands. 
It makes an exclusive and total claim on our lives. God demands that we love Him alone and Him above all. That means you love Him before your wife, before your children, before your parents, before your friends, even before your own life. It also means to love Him not for what He gives us, but to love Him simply for who He is, for His own sake. He is your Creator and your Father, and you are His children. We love Him because He first loved us, and anything else is idolatry. Putting anything or anyone before God, above God, is idolatry. Trusting in someone or something in addition to God is idolatry. And so as believers, we do everything then to remove from our lives anything that would harm or hinder that relationship that we have with our loving Father. We get rid of sin. We hate it. We flee from it. We eradicate and eliminate our old nature wherever we can. And at the same time, we cultivate everything that will strengthen the bond that we have with our Lord. Whatever helps us, helps our new nature to come to life. As believers, we want to rightly come to know God. We trust in Him, submit to Him. You notice how much action is involved on our part? We also expect everything from Him alone. We love him, we fear him, we honor him. In short, we renounce and forsake all other creatures rather than do we even the slightest thing against his will. You see how exclusive and at the same time all-inclusive this command is. And it puts us before a choice, doesn't it? With everything that we do. Because what's the greatest challenge in our life? It is to put God first in everything, isn't it? And that's because idolatry comes so naturally to us. It's hard to put God first. John Calvin wrote, for example, that our hearts are idol factories. We're always craving things that serve ourselves and even things that serve our basest instincts. And have you ever thought, brothers and sisters, what it is that idols do to you? Do you realize what is so horrifying about idols? We sang from Psalm 115, which tells us that people who make idols will become like them. And so will all who trust in them. You will become who and what you worship. Do you want to serve alcohol or drugs? live in a drunken stupor that destroys your life and the lives around you, while you are being destroyed, you become a destroyer like your idol. Do you want to serve pornography, looking at pictures of broken and abused sex slaves? You will become one of them. You will turn into something worse than an animal. And I'm sure you can think of more examples of your own. Idols destroy lives. Idols destroy our relationship with God. Idols don't love you back. They destroy you. Instead of loving you, they they suck the life and the love out of you. Instead of being renewed in the image of Christ, idolatry turns you into the image of the idol that you serve. What a horrifying thought. So brothers and sisters, let us flee 
from idols and let us flee to Christ. Let us put all our hope and our trust in Him alone and in the Holy Spirit whom He has sent. There are also more subtle forms of idolatry. Because at its root, idolatry is the desire to raise ourselves up, isn't it? We tend to think that we are really much more important than what we are, even in our relationship to God. Even in our service to God, we can rank ourselves too highly and not even realize it. If, for example, we think that we are the main objects of Christ's love and the main reason for his sacrifice on the cross, then we've missed the point. Because Christ came first to satisfy God's wrath and not in the first place to save us. And if you believe that, then the cross on Golgotha represents an idol for you. We're not the ultimate objects of Christ's love. The ultimate object of Christ's love is God himself. Because perfect love is exhibited in the Trinity. It is only because God is perfect love, demonstrated in the Trinity, that we also are objects of his love. God himself is the first and the ultimate object of his own love. And that's not because he's some kind of narcissistic, self-absorbed, and egocentric God. Not at all. It is because he is simply God, the triune God. He is most glorious, almighty, sovereign, supreme, majestic, all-knowing, unchangeable, perfectly good, and holy, and patient, and full of love, and grace, and truth, and wisdom, and perfectly just, and righteous, and completely and perfectly self-contained, and self-reliant, and self-sufficient, and self-satisfied. He doesn't need anything. And he cannot be fully understood, or fully known, or added to in any way. And if this is who he is, then, then all love and honor and praise and worship must ultimately be directed to him and him alone. And therefore, this God, in order to be true to himself as well, must also direct his love toward himself. So let's never, ever forget whom we serve. You and I are not number one. And so we have to remember that Christ's greatest love is for his Father. His death and sacrifice on Golgotha were first of all for his Father. Now, should that make us then less sure of our relationship with God? No. The opposite, in fact. The God who has revealed himself to us in his word, who has revealed himself to us in Christ, he is the God who can be trusted and loved and known by his children. So we can su submit to him in love. And we don't have to fear that he will change, that his love will change, that his law will change, that the promises of salvation will change, because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His love for us in Jesus Christ is an expression of the perfect love of the triune God. And therefore, we can trust him. So let us trust him then. Also, in our battle against idolatry, 
Let's trust ourselves. Let's not trust ourselves to stay away from idols. Let's not trust in our own ingenuity, our own, our own resourcefulness, as if we can conquer idols on our own. We need to ask Almighty God for His help. That's what He wants from us too. He is able to, to do so and willing also as our Heavenly Father. So let's pray to Him for His grace and His Holy Spirit. Far too often, prayer is our last resort, isn't it? Far too often, we're, we're guilty of first exhausting our own resources before we seek help from God. And isn't that a form of idolatry as well? Trusting in our own resourcefulness? So, brothers and sisters, let us trust in him and listen to his will. Let's be thankful for the preaching of his word and for his law. We need God's word and we need his law. It's, it's a reality check for us. It's there to show us that we still have a long way to go before we are able to do what God demands. It shows us that we need to repent every day again and turn to Christ. It shows us that we need to ask the Father to forgive us also for the sins that we're not even aware of. And when we do that, the Father will forgive us. That's what he promises. And he will send his Holy Spirit and he will enable us to live for him. That's what the gospel promises in Christ Jesus. And so then, in loving adoration, let us serve this God, who in his love teaches us that we are blessed when we are fully devoted to him alone. Amen.